socialism at its core is arguing for the social cohesion of the United States. It gives the government too much control and too much power interfering in the daily lives of everyday Americans. I'm Kevin Christopher Robles. And I'm Jeff Umbro. Today, a hard-hitting debate on the merits of socialism between Gabe Samandi and Brandon Sapienza. Then, we'll hear from Owen Roach about the ethical quandaries of Thanksgiving. Finally, Adrienne Kahn shares her experience as a Fordham student with a disability. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. I'm joined by Brandon Sapienza and Gabe Samandi, and we are going to have a debate here on Retrospect. I'm also joined by our opinions editor, Jordan Meltzer, and our sports and health editor, Luke Osborne. Both of them are helping us moderate the debate. So, Brandon, Gabe, thanks for being on. Thanks for being here. Each of you wrote recent articles in The Observer arguing for and against socialism. I just would like you guys to reiterate how each of you would define the term socialism and in that answer you know what are the responsibilities of a socialist government and you know are these responsibilities ones that the government should have gabe you have the floor first yeah um so my article was basically about redefining the term socialism and how it's viewed in america especially going up uh, into the midterm elections because it was written before then um and basically the route that I wanted to take was essentially saying that socialism at its core is arguing for the social cohesion of the United States. Um, and you know, from a governmental point of view, that's creating a foundation rather than a safety net for its citizens. Uh, so something that people can build their lives upon as opposed to you know safety nets that can entrap people, especially lower income Americans, uh, how we have under our current system. Um, and so I, I went into that in a couple of different examples, like maybe the op- opioid epidemic, for instance, um, how we could, you know, with different circumstances, handle that better if it was being run through government oversight as opposed to, uh, you know, private companies in the way that they're doing things right now. Brandon, do you have a different definition of it? Yeah, I have my definition of socialism is a is an evil that has taken place uh, for many years now in many countries that have led to starvation, deaths, and other just really negative things. And for me, as someone leaning more towards the right, it gives the government too much control and too much power to intervene in the daily lives of citizens, which is really, as I see it, based on the Constitution, not really their job or their role. Their role is to provide life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in every way they can. That's not interfering in the daily lives of everyday Americans. Do you think that the idea that gets floated around that you know socialism is a, is a system that just gives people free stuff, do you think that's an accurate take on it? Absolutely. Um, You know, people, the reason why people flocked to Bernie Sanders was he offered them free college and free health care and saying all these things are rights, but making things rights with words doesn't make them good or rights, quite honestly. And I think that people have exploited the term socialism, or as Bernie Sanders said, democratic socialism, um, to just really get free stuff because they, a lot of these people who much of the people who believe in socialism are millennials and young people who might not be doing as well as they would have hoped when they graduated college or whatnot. So they turn and want free stuff because they can't do it themselves. 
Uh, I would lend some credence to that argument. I think that in certain circles of America, there are people who believe that, you know, by advocating for the system of government, they might personally advantage, uh, take advantage of, you know, other taxpayers' money. And I won't deny that there are some people who actually believe that. But what I'm arguing for isn't, you know, for benefit of me. Um, you know, if I'm talking about like redefining the way we do public housing, I'm not ever really worried that I'm going to end up in public housing. I mean, I go to a four-year private university, I'm going to be fine. But what I am arguing for are the people down the road who may not have the same opportunities that I have because they're then, you know, benefiting from a government that's taking better care of them and more efficient care of them uh, is going to help everyone in society, everyone in the city uh, by allowing, you know, better things to arise out of their own situations and by enabling them, creating a foundation for them uh, to, you know, produce in society as much as I am sure that I'll be able to produce once I graduate, um, we're going to have a stronger society as a result. So I guess moving on to the current state of the Republican Party, both of you have been critical of President Trump and his administration in your articles. For Gabe, I'm wondering if you think that socialism is perhaps a viable response to everything that's come out of the Trump administration and a, a way to solve some of the problems that you see within the administration. And Brandon, if you're not, if you don't want to solve these problems through socialism, what's the route that you would take? Yeah, my thing with President Trump is uh, to say all of his policies are bad is not true. Mm -hmm. I think some of his policies are good. I think the problem with him is he's the messenger. He's the guy that's representing a party that I don't believe stands for his moral character, which is the point I tried to put across in my article. I don't think he embodies what it truly means to be a Republican or, quite honestly, a president. You know, his behavior is sometimes it is humorous. It is uh, interesting to look at, but it's also concerning that you know, he's probably going to be a big reason why, if the uh, Republicans do lose in 2020, that he will probably be the reason why, because who could possibly look at the news every night and watch him tweeting, calling people this, this, and that. So I think that's the problem. I don't think the policies are necessarily always the problem, even though I initially for the tax law, I'm kind of on the fence about it because it hurts New Yorkers, specifically New York City because we can't uh, write off our state and local taxes, but I don't think his policies are actually that bad. Um, okay, so to get back to the original question, yeah. which was uh, how do I feel socialism might address uh, Trump and then the 2020 election specifically? I think essentially what, uh, and something that Brandon, you touched on, um, is that the demeanor of President Trump uh, has exacerbated some of the more latent issues that Americans weren't necessarily concerned about coming into 2016, but are now at the forefront of everyone's minds. And a lot of that comes from social tension, uh, racial tension, uh, issues with gender, and um, you know the, the social cohesion of America seems to be falling apart sometimes. Uh, and we see that in you know protests that end violently, uh, which happen on both sides. There are examples of uh, domestic terrorism influenced by both uh, camps of politics. You know, we've, we've had uh, people shooting police officers in the street uh, with sniper rifles, and we've also had people committing hate crimes at places of worship. Um, and both of these are sort of influenced by, you know, radicalist, uh, socially just divisive rhetoric on both sides. Um, I think to a large part of that, President Trump has exacerbated that issue, and he is one of the primary reasons why we're seeing so much of this violence today, because of just what he's encouraging with his platform as president. Um, and so I think that the solution uh, is to combine a message of social cohesion 
socially through the issues of politics and the issues of identity with an economic perspective that is going to address those issues and the social inequity that we face in our country. Um, something that I wanted to get into earlier, but we, we moved on, was uh, how Reaganomics has essentially left the poor in the dust um, since the 80s. The purchasing power of the lowest classes in America have been uh, sub systematically oppressed, essentially, by being left in behind. Um, they're less off, well off now than they were in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the economic reform that happened in the 80s. Of course, our GDP has increased. A lot of the macro-scale economics have been better, but so have many countries in Europe, like Germany and Ireland, but they haven't left their poor in the dust like we have. Um, and so a lot of these issues that we're seeing socially with racial tension, with uh, the lower classes sort of, you know, being at odds with the upper classes is because of this economic inequity that has always been there, especially, you know, because of Reagan and now where we're at socially with Trump. So I think that the trick will be addressing both of those at once with a socialist platform. Brandon, I saw you reacting to a couple things Gabe was <laughs> saying. Um, any thoughts? Um, well, the first part with the domestic terrorism, I think that I think that's a. I think that's an even split. I, you know, my problem is a lot of it goes unreported. You know, there's been plenty of Antifa protests, and I'll be doing another article on this on free speech on college campuses where we've seen them just absolutely bamboozle everything and try and destroy that all from happening. So I, I think it's a thing on both sides, absolutely. But to say it's leaning towards one, it's going to look like that when the other side isn't reported. Um, I think Gabe brought up a point that I'm just that slipped from my hot mind, so I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> Gabe, any any more thoughts on that on on the division of violence? Statistics and published research shows that right wing extremism is a little bit more prevalent in America. Uh, I say a little bit; I don't have the exact figures in mind right now, but I uh, have seen a couple of different publications showing that right wing extremism is more popular in America, especially when you compare it to you know Islamic extremism or leftist extremism, uh, there just are more reported incidents of hate crimes occurring from the right. Um, whether this speaks to some inability of the right to you know, keep its people in check or whatever, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that there is this issue of social divisiveness. And a lot of that has been inspired by President Trump. And the facts do support that argument. Brandon, you touched, this, touched on this in your article a little bit, the, the difference between quote-unquote real socialism and not real socialism. Uh, do you both want to maybe answer a quick question on, uh, on whether or not like the Scandinavian countries that, uh, that are often cited as real socialism, what that actually means and whether you agree with a term like that? So for me, real socialism is more of a country like Venezuela um, who tried implementing these policies of sharing the wealth and and now they're eating dogs. Um, as far as the Nordic countries, I wouldn't say that they're actually, you know, they're starting to elect more right-wing leaders, so they're moving towards away from socialism, but they have so a a lot of traits that a socialist country would have. They have 60% taxes on anyone making $60,000 or more. They have 150% taxes on new uh, new cars. Um, but at the same time, they have they, I think Sweden in the 1970s uh, experimented with 100% corporation tax, which is why IKEA left. Um, so that that to me is more of a socialism that's almost socialism, but not quite, but still has the oppressive characteristics of, of Venezuela. Um, 
Well, to speak to Venezuela in particular, I think that's a very unique case study in sociopolitics just because of the uh, history of what's been going on in Venezuela for so long. Um, the primary issue in Venezuela isn't their form of economics, but the political corruption that has pervaded every instance of civil society there. Um, and that's what's causing a lot of that violence and that, that civil unrest and that uh, extreme poverty. Um, and in fact, a lot of that political corruption was incited by the Reagan administration in the 80s. Uh, and what was done in Venezuela by uh, the CIA during that time. Um, and so uh, uh, I, just to speak to, to Venezuela and its stance in economics, I don't think that it is a accurate representation of what we would be shooting for here in America. Um, if you want to stay in South America regionally, you could look at other examples of countries that are handling it a little more successfully, again, with their own challenges just because of what went on in the 80s in South America. But um, uh, Bolivia is a little bit of a better example and how they're handling uh, economic policy and just how that's working for them. Uh, President Evo Morales is a you know self-declared socialist and is handling um, the economics of his country a lot better than I would say uh, Venezuela has in the last 30, 40 years even. Um, and so uh, that's just to sort of speak to Venezuela. I think that the Scandinavian countries that we were discussing earlier, um, those countries sort of have their own unique identities and a lot of that is sort of in uh, giving a lot more to the government and to a homogenous civil society. I don't think Americans have that culture. Um, and that's why I'm not advocating for the same kind of socialism that you see in those countries where they're you know donating like half of their uh, yearly income to taxes and that sort of thing. Um, we're already doing something similar with the way that we pay our insurance and the way that we pay our taxes or you know taking up these huge amounts of money into sort of, you know, the same civil services, basically. Um, but I'm not advocating for these, you know, suffocatingly high taxes. I'm advocating for a sense of um, social unity and redistributing the way that we do funds in the government itself uh, and sort of loosening up the way that we have restrictions on public funding within the government. So, Brandon, in, right now, instead of, well, you can re rebut some of what Gabe just said, but can you also maybe give one or two final thoughts on everything that, everything that we've talked about? To wrap this up, I think yeah, people have to remember that capitalism has raised more people out of poverty than any other uh, system of economics in America, and that more freedom equals more possibilities. So government uh, remaining out of people's lives on a day-to-day, -day, less regulation and less involvement and in the everyday lives of citizens can just, there's a lot of possibilities that go with that, and I think people need to welcome that back to their lives because that is an American value that we've shared since you know the dawn of this country. Thank you. Gabe, any, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, what we're seeing in America today with the social division of our country uh, is sort of a testament to the fact that the numbers are in and Reaganomics doesn't work. Uh, and so how we need to address a lot of these social issues that we're facing are through the economic policies that are you know, bringing about this sort of social division in our country. And the best chance we have of doing that is redefining the way that we look at the left in America. If I could just say one more thing. Really quick. What we just did is something that no one else does. No one has a conversation anymore. <laughs> I say this, and I'm probably going to put this in my bio on the Observer website. I encourage conversation more than anything because we live in such an era where that doesn't happen a lot. So, Gabe, thank you for a uh, good conversation because we don't have this anymore. And especially here in New York, it's just not normal to have a conversation politically. So I think it's important to take away from this as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, both of you guys, for thank coming on and, and having this talk. Oh, so, again, that was Brandon Sapienza and Gabe Samandi. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yep, thanks. Owen Roach, opinions editor for The Observer, sets the table for a spirited 
Thanksgiving discussion. Owen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So your article in the print issue is titled Thanksgiving, the Holiday of Moral Qualms. It is. Uh, we're hoping you just go into a brief summary of, of what you talk about in the article and what some of those moral qualms you have about the holiday might be. Yes, well, uh, I, I believe an explanation for that would start with the uh, book that I had as a child about the first Thanksgiving that had very, very happy illustrations of uh, Native Americans and pilgrims as they all sat down together and enjoyed a very nice meal. And uh, just as history progressed and uh, as I learned more about the issue, uh, I have reason to believe it's not as rosy as I once thought. This holiday is a paragon of ethical anxiety and uh, I, I believe that anyone who celebrates the holiday is not doing it justice unless they have a breakdown or two. I think that the, the one thing that people associate with Thanksgiving more than anything else is food. In my house, uh, the, the ethical quandaries surrounding the food at Thanksgiving are on full display as uh, we elect not to get a giant turkey and cook it up in the oven in favor of other meals that don't have as much meat in them or any at all. Why doesn't your family eat turkey? I guess that there is a uh, sort of gray area surrounding the consumption of meat, especially in the aftermath of uh, the United Nations climate report. And uh, it, it names eating meat among the worst things you can do for the environment just because of all of the carbon emissions that it produces. Or you're a, a vegan personally. Is, yes. your, is your entire family also vegan? Yes, we all are. We're all insufferable. And uh, our conversations at Thanksgiving are very spirited because we all agree. <laughs> so what, what, are some, what are some things that you eat for Thanksgiving, you know, instead of the traditional turkey or roast beef? Well, uh, the, the excellent illustration in this issue of the Observer by uh, Carla de Miranda shows a tofurkey box being served at the table. And uh, I, I think that a uh, misconception of a vegan Thanksgiving is that, you know, we sit around a big block of tofu that smells like crayons and we all mm -hmm. dig in. However, there are, especially in 2018, there are a lot of um, alternatives that make having a really, really delicious vegan Thanksgiving very, very easy. Do you think that maybe you're being too harsh on Thanksgiving? Do you think there might even be some positive aspects to it? Well, I think the positive aspect is obviously giving thanks. It's, it's the name of the holiday. However, if you have to devote an entire holiday to giving thanks or to make an excuse to give thanks out of the year, I think you're giving thanks in the wrong way. What about, you know, the holiday as an opportunity to get together with family and see people that you don't normally see? You know, is there, is there value to that? Well, I, I have some, some conflicting thoughts on this, but the most predominant, especially as I, I get older and I get a little more politically conscious and my uh, relatives get a little older themselves, I, I found myself more and more uh, given to butting heads with some of my relatives over the issues of the day, especially as divisive as politics are these days. Therefore, uh, I mean, once, once everybody gets a little alcohol into their system and uh, my aunts and uncles start opening up about how they really feel about certain members of society, Sometimes I wish Thanksgiving wasn't about family. You know, this is a recurring thing that people face at Thanksgiving, having to confront relatives whom they disagree with politically or religiously or otherwise. Do you think there are some ways in which this divide between family members can be mended, or is this simply hopeless? Well, uh, I don't think people are very given to learning <laughs> on Thanksgiving. And I don't think Thanksgiving really is the time to educate them on all of the uh, uh, 
ethical questions they should be asking themselves before they dig into a big plate of turkey uh, or open their mouths after a couple glasses of wine. But doing your homework before going to any sort of family function or encountering any sort of problem is probably a good idea. What would you say to another student who, or someone who is also perhaps not looking forward to going home for the holidays? I say let it fuel your angst. I think that uh, this time of year is perfect for your your quandaries, your qualms, your uh, your, your your torment. You know, I, I think it's a great time of year to sort of fuel that motivation so that it comes to fruition in perhaps a, a manifesto or a uh, a very spirited ethics essay. So you think they should they should confront the differences and perhaps they found their family members with whom they disagree. Head on. I believe so. I, I think that the sun is setting at four o'clock and uh, might as well just go all in and burn some bridges. Well, thank you for joining us today, Owen. Oh, it was a pleasure. Are there any other final remarks or last things you want to say, especially to the members of the Fordham community? Who will be going home for Thanksgiving? Ah, to the members of the Fordham community, think twice before you uh, dig in this year. I, I think that there's a lot more to Thanksgiving to think about than meets the eye. Joining us is Adrian Kong, who wrote an open letter in the opinion section talking about her disability. Adrian, can you talk a little bit about what your experience was that led you to write that article? Ever since I was four, I found out I was deaf in my left ear. And since then, my parents, like my school district, we were very wealthy. I was lucky. And they like tried their best to help me with my accommodations. And I had special education teachers who were very clear about uh, advocating for yourself and like, you know, getting like that you had rights in education. Um, so basically, when I got here, I was like, okay, I can try to, my best to accommodate for myself, but obviously it's college. But uh, basically what happened with this professor was that she was like fully capable of providing my accommodations, but she just refused. And that obviously made me very like upset about it. I ranted a lot to my friends about it, but it was just like casual ranting because I kind of expected it in a way. Um, but then they were very shocked, and then like uh, one of my good friends uh, suggested for me to write an article about it, and I was like, oh, I'll do that. So you mentioned in your article that accommodations would be really, really simple to implement, mm -hmm. and most professors are willing to implement those. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what do you mean by accommodations? If a student has like ADHD, um, which a lot of kids did in my high school, they could get like an extra time to finish their exam um, because they're just, it's more difficult for them to focus. Therefore, it's like more fair to give them more time to try to like finish their exam. Um, it could also be like a copy of notes. It could also be preferential seating. So I don't wear a hearing, hearing aid because it distracts me instead of helps me. But then to replace that, I get to technically sit up front if I want to. and. It's just small things like that. Most of them um, are even like taken out of the hands of the professors, really. It's provided by like the actual Office of Disability Services, but it, they just need the consent of the professors. 
do you think there are measures that the university and the Office of Disability Services, what are things that they can do to make sure that things like this don't happen to you and other students with disabilities? They could try to educate their, like the professors more on the situation because obviously there's, there is a point in um, her like refusing me. It is her intellectual property. She did do her own research on that, most likely. And there's like certain rules of that. And if you bring in like intellectual property, then it becomes a whole other situation. But if um, the Office of Disability Services like made it more clear as to like why this is necessary and like how this benefits students, then like professors would probably be more understanding and then be more accommodating. Um, some of them just don't understand how difficult it is to learn when you have a disability. Is there anything you'd like to say to other students here who have disabilities? What sort of message would you like to send to them? I would say mainly to um, to speak up about it. Like people, my, my experience was rough, but it's been a rare occurrence, I would say. Like, with in terms of accommodating professors and like teachers overall, there's only been like a handful of instances. And usually if you explain to them well enough as to why you need something or why you want something done, like they will try to help you because m the majority of um, professors and teachers, they do want you to learn. So they're, they are gonna try to help you, but you just gotta speak out about it. You can't be expecting um, other people to understand what you're going through. This has been episode four of Retrospect. I'm Jeff Umbro. And I'm Kevin Christopher Robles. Until next time.